The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 12th chapter. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. Lord. Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it's gonna rain. So it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, hmm, there is gonna be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. And let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm doing something that I've never done before as a preacher. For the month of August, I am preaching a sermon series on the text appointed from Hebrews every Sunday. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I think it's exciting. Hebrews. I know that some of you are studying Hebrews now during the week, and that's a good thing. I encourage you to do that. Um, one wag noted once upon a time something about the King James version of Hebrews and the way that it's printed in the book. If you have a King James Bible at home and you open it up to Hebrews, which comes right before James, um, you're going to see this as the title. The Epistle of Paul, the Apostle to the Hebrews. And that wag, one of my professors said, it's all wrong. This is not an epistle. It was not written by Paul. And it was certainly not written to Hebrews. <laughs> well, I thought that was funny. I've never preached a sermon series on Hebrews before, but now seems like a really good time for it. I told you a reason last week, and I'm going to tell you another reason today. Nostalgia. So, 
As a retired Lutheran pastor serving in a time when it seems like there is something of a shortage of pastors, um, I am responding to God's claim on my life to, to going all over the place wherever there is need and wherever I am called upon, and so right now I'm here. And as I talk with people in congregations all over the place, I hear a certain kind of wistfulness for the past. On my way here, I was listening to a CD. Uh, it was produced by the famous St. Olaf Choir. A um, bunch of hymns. Hymns that I love. Hymns that I love. And um, I was singing them as I'm driving along, along with the choir. And um, every once in a while, I end up finding myself moved to tears as I'm singing one of these hymns along with the choir, and sometimes also in the congregation. And although I'm not ashamed of that, I also know that I'm a kind of sentimental guy. I have a streak of sentimentality in me that's really deep and wide. And so I know that as I sing these hymns from my childhood that connect me with all kinds of people and events of the past, I'm also connecting with my own sentimentality about what was. And as I go around the church Sunday after Sunday, I hear an awful lot of that from people. And oftentimes it takes the form of something like this. You know, Pastor, it used to be, <laughs> it used to be on a Sunday morning that people would come dressed in their Sunday clothes, that when people would go to church, everyone would be there, the place would be filled. When we would go to church, Children would know how to behave. <laughs> My kids never did. I didn't either. One time, actually, in church, we, when I was growing up, we, we always sat in this balcony on the side, and there was a woman in the congregation, Esther Geipel. God rest her soul. I can say it here because I'm more than a thousand miles away. Um, and Esther was a contralto. She was a contralto, and usually once a month she would sing a solo, and Esther had a very big vibrato at that point in her life. She was kind of going on in years, had a very big, wide vibrato. And we were sitting there, and my dad is looking straight ahead, not looking at Esther, and very quietly, knowing that I'm sitting next to him, he starts going, I started laughing, and my mother, sitting on the other side of me, pinched me as hard as she ever pinched me before, and my dad, of course, sat there smiling. You know, Pastor, it's not like it used to be. And oftentimes, that gets wrapped up with certain people, very often a pastor. Huh? 
pastor, you fill in the blank, right? You fill in the blank. Pastor Sanderson, oh my, when Pastor Sanderson was here, it was wonderful, huh? Well, we all know, we live with nostalgia, all of us do. We experience nostalgia, it's just a part of being human. It's a part of our relationship to the past. And in many ways, it's a good thing because you know, there's been actually scientific work done on endorphins produced when people engage in nostalgic emotions. Now, it's not a bad thing. But there's a certain form of it that I think is poisonous in the life of the church. Absolutely poisonous. And I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and just say to you that I think that certain forms of nostalgia are actually a form of unbelief. Certain forms of nostalgia are actually a form of unbelief. That form of nostalgia that sounds like this. What we must do tomorrow is figure out how to reproduce the past. Because the past was better. We may not say that aloud in congregations, but oftentimes that is swimming underneath the surface. And I see heads nodding. We know this. And I think that the community that first heard this word of encouragement that we call the letter to the Hebrews was a community that was experiencing just such a battle with nostalgia. We know because of what the letter itself says that they were tired, they were weary, they were, they were sick of church. But also, as a part of what we read in there, one can hear that the writer is concerned about the power of this notion that the past is where we need to go if we want to be healthy. And so what she does for us, this preacher, what she does for us is she lays out a vision of faith which doesn't look backwards, a vision of faith which looks ahead. Her vision of faith is future-oriented. And I want to talk to you about that now, because, 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 she is convinced that God is waiting for us just over the horizon just like God has always been there before. The been there before stuff is not where we want to go back to, she says. That simply helps us understand the character of the one who is waiting for us just over the horizon. And in the multiracial congregation I served for a long time, I would say to folks, can I get an amen? Thank you. So, in order to 
in order to draw her congregation away from enslavement to the past and a nostalgic relationship to it, she looks at the past. She looks very carefully at the past in Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter that we've been reading the past couple of Sundays. She looks at the past. In fact, what she does in her summary of heroes, she lists 18 great heroes and then alludes to a bunch of other folks from Israel's past. What she ends up doing there is taking the congregation through a brief summary of the whole story of the Old Testament from the beginning of the Old Testament to the present, her present moment with them. It's an amazing sweep, a great accomplishment, and she holds up various folks. And I'm going to look at a couple of those folks with you, and I'm going to ask you, you're going to need to bear with me because when I got here, I realized that what I brought with me, not my sermon, but my sermon working notes. So I'm going to preach from those working notes, and we'll let God do the rest. So she says, just before our reading begins today, as she's celebrating some of the heroes who by faith walked with God into the future, she looks at the great patriarchs, and she focuses on Joseph. You remember Joseph, don't you? Joseph with his, his coat of many colors, his dreams, he ends up after being thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers, sold to a group of Midianite traders, taken off to Egypt, and there he rises in the ranks until, as the story goes, he becomes the number two guy in Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh, right? This is Joseph. A famine comes, strikes the land of Canaan, where his family is living, and they come to Egypt because Joseph has very wisely set up a system of saving provisions to get through a time like famine. And so his family goes to Egypt. You remember this whole story, how it goes. He eventually uh, reveals himself to his brothers, speaks a powerful word of reconciliation to them, and then the book of Genesis closes. Um, and our preacher, our preacher says this. She, she references the conclusion of the book of Genesis by saying, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and gave instructions about his bones. Do you know about this? Joseph, at the Genesis chapter 50, Joseph knows he's dying. And so he says to his family, his brothers, his family, he says, I'm going to die, but there will come a time when, and by this time they're all living in Egypt, right? He says, there will come a day when God brings us all out of this place to the land that God has promised. And when that happens, I want you to bring my bones with you as you travel there and bury them in the promised land. Will you do that? And they said, sure. Well, 
400 years later, after 400 years of enslavement, the exodus finally occurs, and here's this little note in Exodus chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer, for God thought if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt, where things used to be so good. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle, and Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. 400 years later. And then, you know what happens. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they enter into the promised land, and it takes them 60 years to claim the promised land. And so 100 years later, after that, we get this notice at the very end of the book of Joshua. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem at the portion of ground that Jacob had bought from the children of Hamor for 100 pieces of money. Five hundred years. Joseph says to them, when I die, take my bones and carry them with you when God finally delivers you, because our God will do this. Joseph's faith, as he looks into his own grave, refuses to acknowledge that death, his death, could annul God's promises. On the contrary, on the contrary, he trusts those promises for grace, even as he stands at the edge of his own grave. And he says, Take my bones, for God will surely remember all God's promises and deliver you and bring you to the land that God has promised. That is the kind of faith that is always willing to look just over the horizon with the confidence that the God who was with us in the past is waiting for us just over the horizon. The problem with forgetting your sermon and bringing your notes for an old preacher like me is that I would be happy to talk to you about this all day long. But we're not going to do that. There are two other folks I want to mention. Rahab, the prostitute, who was not an Israelite, who is mentioned in this list of heroes as a person of faith, because she hid the spies. Do you remember this story? As Joshua was getting ready to go into the promised land with the Israelites to claim the land, he sent spies to check out the first city on the way to see what it was going to be like, Jericho. 
and they show up in town and they very smartly decide that they're going to spend the night in the house of a prostitute because how is that going to arouse suspicion if two guys show up in a town and spend the night in a house of prostitution? That's the thinking in the story. And the king has recognized that a couple of foreigners showed up in town and went to Rahab's house. And he's wondering what they're up to. He's not suspicious of Rahab, but he's wondering what the spies are up to. And Rahab says to the spies, when the king sends men to her house, go up on the roof. They go up on the roof of her house. She covers them with flax. And the dumb soldiers don't see them. And then when the soldiers go away after she has sent them on a wild goose chase, she goes back up on the roof and she says, I know that the Lord your God has given the land to the Israelites. I know this, she says, using an expression of intimacy that points to faith. And because of this, she says, I'm going to hide you, but when you come back here to take the city, you have to promise me that you're not going to kill me and my family. And they make the promise. They make that promise. And Rahab then enters finally into the story as one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. Read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab, the prostitute, is listed there as one of Jesus' ancestors. And so she is celebrated as one of the heroes of faith because she could look beyond the horizon in confidence that God was waiting for her too, this Gentile woman working as a sex worker. All right, I wanted to talk to you about Gideon, but I'm not going to because I'll lose you completely. The metaphor changes. Right at the end of this chapter that we heard today, the metaphor changes. We've been hearing a metaphor that really involves an unbroken cord of faith that stretches back to the creation all the way to the city of God. That's the metaphor that is being used here as these heroes are raised up. But then she switches the metaphor from this unbroken cord to that of the sports arena. And she says to the congregation, all these folks, all these heroes, with their, their successes and their failures and their faith, are now sitting in the amphitheater in the stands, all around us, cheering us on, because now in the great relay race of faith, it's our turn to take the baton and run. And all those heroes are there, and they are there cheering us on encouraging us to do as they did, to look 
just beyond the horizon, to run the race with endurance, setting aside every kind of weight, every kind of encumbrance, the sin that clings so closely, because you know runners in the ancient world ran naked. No sense having clothes on to impair that good running. And, yeah, they are to know the, the, the direction of the course and the pace they are to run by following the pioneer who is running ahead of them, the one who set the course for them and runs ahead of them still, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And this word is meant for us to hear. I think one of the weights, one of the encumbrances we need to set aside is nostalgia about the how the way things were. Whether that nostalgia has to do with the Indonesian food that you used to eat back home, and you think, oh gosh, that was the best food ever. Or, or I don't know, cardamom bread. I don't know how many Swedes are sitting here in the crowd. To set aside nostalgia, sentimentality, to set aside the weight of believing that in order for the future to be better, we must somehow recreate the past. Sisters and brothers, it's time for us to run the race. We are running the race. The danger is that we get winded and set it aside and look to the past instead of the future. I encourage you as a community of faith to not give up the race, but together to figure out how to run by looking together to Jesus, who runs ahead of us and promises to be there just beyond the horizon, waiting for us with that word, well done, faithful servants. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.